Hey everybody, I'm Garrett. And I'm Melissa. We've been married for eight years and have two kids, Caleb and Sadie. Over the last few years, we have fallen in love with the scriptures and are learning how digging into God's word has helped us grow deeper with each other and those around us. We want to be real about our lives, our struggles, and our joys. This is Growing Deeper. Hey guys, before we get to the podcast, just want to remind you to rate and review the podcast. That'll make sure that if somebody looks up Exodus or Ruth, uh, that they will be able to pull up our podcast and, and see what we have to say on different sections of the Bible. Also, if you have any questions or comments or things that you want to share with us, uh, you can email us now. We now have an email address of growingdeeperpodcast at gmail.com. That's growingdeeperpodcast at gmail.com. Shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you, even just uh, saying, hey, we're listening and really appreciate it or something like that. I don't know. Uh, shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back. Today we're going to be wrapping up Ruth um, in chapter four. And before we get into that, um, we've been doing this new thing where we've asked um, friends or members of Yak or family members, or I guess Yak members are friends. Right. But... <laughs> But in general, we've been asking we've been asking people, hey, you know, send us in a question, uh, or uh, send us, uh, or and or send your favorite scripture and kind of give us some background on why that's your favorite scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're gonna we're gonna start off here uh, with a a question that we got uh, from uh, Jennifer. If a zombie apocalypse is coming, what three people do you want on your team? And this can't this can't be your kids. Like, obviously you're going to bring your kids and your spouse, but what other three people do you want on your team? So I, uh, in the past, I think we've, we've actually brought up this question before and I answered it, but I know that you didn't answer it. Yeah. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Um, but yeah, I didn't answer it last time because I was having a hard time coming up with people. Yeah, but now I forced her hand and I was like, no, Jennifer sent in a question. You need to answer it. Yeah, so mine, Garrett decided that I could do characters. Yeah, I mean, the stipulation Um, was you can't have family members, which is really, she said siblings and stuff and Melissa was like... Well, no, she she said spouse and kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but she said spouse and kids and then she was like, but I want my mom! And I was like, no. She won't let me That doesn't count. You can't do it like that. Sorry, mom. It needs to be... You were in my original (laughs) top three. Yeah. Even over Garrett. Yeah. (laughs) Say I want my mom. All right, so I'm going to do my three and they are all characters. So first off... I'm going to do Hermione from Harry Potter because did you see the bag she was carrying Yeah, around? if you can think of the most important character to the Harry Potter series, she it was Hermione Granger. constantly saved yeah. everybody else's life. The, legitimately, the rest of the book doesn't happen if he doesn't meet Hermione Granger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she's also, you know, she's got the bag that has, she's like... She's going to make the world's best mom because she's always prepared with the things in the bag of like, oh, yeah, here's this huge tent and here's this potion and here, you know, whatever. So she's totally going to be a great mom and uh, she will have all the things that we will need. Plus, she's just super smart. Well, I guess technically in the uh, the the cursed child, she becomes like minister of magic. Okay. See what I mean? Yeah. But Um, great. I mean, Spoiler alert, um, not that I, I really don't count that as a part of the series, in my mind. 
Cursed Child doesn't really count. It's just kind of a nice little expedition thing. So, so. Uh, secondly, we have, um, I'm actually going to do, Aragorn from uh, The Lord of the Rings. He eventually becomes king in The Lord of the Rings. and But he Spoiler is... Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's been out You've got to tell people before you just yeah, okay, wait spill the beans that, on that. That movie has been out since 2003 or two maybe even earlier yeah so well the book's been out a long time yeah get get with with it if you haven't seen it but absolutely i mean aragorn Um, leadership qualities he knows how to slice somebody's head off he's super humble though too at the same time he doesn't originally like want to be king and um like he doesn't it's almost like he doesn't feel worthy of it Right. Or and he's scared. You're of a Sildor there, not a Sildor himself. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, but so he's he has kind of a humble. What is he technically called? A ranger. He's a ranger. Yeah. A ranger. ranger so north. he's very good in the in the woods. He also knows like different plants and what they would right. do to like. A hobbit help. lay here. A second. <laughs> Anyways. You're, you're ruining this. Um. Well, you did just hit my total nerd qualities and mentioning Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. Well, but that's that's why we're married is because yeah. we both like these things. But those are like right in my nerd wheelhouse. Or that's one of the many reasons we're yes. married. Um, but the last one is um, you can't leave out the MVP of the apocalypse, and that's uh, Mr. Rick Grimes right? Um, from The Walking Dead. Like, it's... He's just... Well, I mean, you've got the forty-four Magnum, which I'm like, how does he keep finding bullets for forty-four Magnums? <laughs> I don't really, That's I don't really know how he does that. But he is Rick Grimes, and it, you know, he is the leader of the apocalypse. Uh, he's very, revolt. he's very resourceful. Yeah. He's very smart. He's a kind of a natural leader. He loses his mind pretty often. Uh, starts hallucinating. Okay, but like right. almost everyone has a moment <laughs> like that in this. Everybody in the show. hallucinates in the zombie <laughs> apocalypse. Every, that takes a while for him to to get to that point. But again, he's kind of like a good at tracking and stuff, and so I think that's who I would. I think that's who I would have as my third because you can't. I mean, yeah, you can't go through the apocalypse without Rick Grimes. Yeah, I could see Daryl in there too. I mean, obviously he he. Does yeah great yeah does that, well for himself yeah he's kind of Aragorny, but yeah, yeah. So. he's not as he's not as much of a natural born leader right he has to be developed by the MVP yeah yeah so I feel like with someone like Rick he might actually truly be able to help rebuild a society in mm-hmm. an apocalypse yeah whereas Daryl is just like I'm gonna go live in the woods and be okay with this forever right. I like those choices. I think those are good. Three, three really good ones. I would probably feel a little bit intimidated by uh, Aragorn, not so much Rick, but Aragorn for sure. You Anyways. wouldn't feel intimidated by Rick. No. Okay. Nah. All right. Well, back to the more serious <laughs> things. Um, next up, we have the, um, I guess, a scripture. Yeah, we a- we just asked. Uh, for for favorite scriptures, why is it your favorite scripture? So uh, Michael felt that he would provide his. Hey Garrett, um, today I'll be reading Second Timothy chapter four, verse seven. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
this was something that somebody had told me a long time ago, and it's just sort of when times are are not the best for me, that I, for some reason I, I always just turn back to this, because we're all going to have those ups and downs, and the ups are always pretty easy to keep your faith, but when times are really bad, when you've had those times in your life, that seems just you use, it's easy to turn your back. But then if you look at it and you go, have I fought the good fight to keep my faith? And I have let my faith help me through those times to, to, to clarify my thinking, to sit down for a second. And I go back to that be still part of me to sort of let the love I feel like in my heart, mind, soul, just to, to bond with that connection to help me through those tough times. And it, I, to me, and honestly, it really has. So I look at it as, if, even at this night night now, I look at the end of the day and I say, have I fought the good fight? And when I have some time that I can, I look at it and I say, those two simple things that I always you know, try to remind myself of is, is, is love God and love your brothers and sisters. So that's how I always try to, at least if, if it's not the biggest thing, but the smallest thing I can do to to keep the good fight going for us, that we're all going to spread the word, spread the love that God, even before time, has offered us. I really, I love this passage that Michael brought up, and I love um, his uh, rationale behind it and and how he was talking about, you know, every day kind of reflecting on this idea of, have I done my best to love God and love others? And I think... Um, what kind of stands out to me with that is this idea that sometimes when things are so dark or we're going through times that seem so tough, um, sometimes there's no end in sight. And so to kind of take that back to a, what can I do today to love God and love other people seems a lot more manageable and, um, and can kind of help keep you centered and focused. And so that's something that his kind of thought process about this verse kind of brought out for me. Yeah. Um, just kind of uh, taking that a step further, I guess, for, for what that sh- what his explanation showed me of, um, you know, I, I think right now it's just, I can hardly believe what's going on in our country. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously from COVID to racism to, um, you know, rioting, the and, rioting, and you know, and everything, and how everybody in these. This is kind of a side note, but just how everybody in groups get labeled a certain way, when really it's more complicated than that. Um, but I just kind of think you know it feels like there's no end in sight to that, and it feels like there's a lot of chaos and a lot of what can I do to make this better and Michael kind of get told us the answer of just love God and love each other yeah and um and just kind of reflecting each day to see have we have we done the best we can have we you know fought the good fight for just that day and taking things a day at a time yeah I mean I, I think a lot of times when we read this stuff especially uh, New Testament letters, we kind of, I think, I do think sometimes we kind of paint it like as if the Bible was written by people that had 
that were in the good times, and like they're just telling you, "Hey, go do these good things," you know, and that's the way that we read the Bible. Here's some ways to to be a better person today, or to to do, you know, I guess that they're kind of living on the greener side of the fence, you know, telling you how to make your side green, and I think if not always. Uh, like every book of the Bible seems to be written in a time of extreme turmoil, um, where they're going through really hard, um, you know, really hard moments, uh, both individually and as a nation, um, that they're they're having a hard time dealing with stuff, and that's no different for this scripture for for Paul. I mean, he's he's saying in in verse six there, right before this, it says, "I'm already being poured out." as a drink offering and my time for my departure is imminent. And so uh, what they would do, what he's referencing is he's actually referencing ritual practice of the old Testament of saying, you know, like this drink being poured out on the coals and uh, the, the, like this vapor would rise up um, to God. And uh, he's basically saying, I'm like, I'm, I'm transitioning right now from, from here to, somewhere to this presence with God and like my time is up. Uh, that's where Paul is in this moment of writing this. He, he feels like his life is over. Um, and he's reflecting on it and being like, I've done everything that I can and I've fought the good fight. Um, and I, I think we very much in this moment are living through the hard times, just like all of these biblical writers are, are dealing with. I mean, it is over and over again. It's just like a lot of the scriptures were written in exile, um, and and you know, and Paul is is you know doing most of his letters from prison, um, and so this, I don't I don't know. I guess I just want to kind of remind us that these things are being said by people going through really hard stuff, and they're having faith in God and trusting in Him. Um, and putting putting their trust in this righteous this righteous judge who's going to take care of it like he's going to handle it whatever it is that's going that we're going through right now the things the injustices that we see um, and the things in this world we're putting trust in God that he's going to handle it um, and that that he he is the only righteous judge um, so anyways I, I I think of it you know that is kind of the context that it's coming from and I think for us like we're Right now, we're going through a really hard time with with Caleb. You know, like every every day, it's like a roll of the dice of what we're going to get. And, you know, he's throwing stuff and, you know, he's throwing, you know, I have a hole in my drywall right now where he threw a chair through the drywall. And, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get through every day. You know, like how do we, how do we teach him, you know, and how do we discipline him the right way? to where he, he's going to, he's going to learn from it. And we're really struggling with that right now. And, uh, and how that, how, how to do that. Cause we just feel like we're running out of answers and, you know, and so it is just like this daily, this daily battle getting up and being like, okay, you know, how do I, how do I love God and love my neighbors today? How do I make sure, how do I teach my son that this is how we love people mm-hmm. and, and that we don't react this way. You know, like just because we don't get our way, it doesn't mean we react this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and this small thing grows into a big thing. Um, and I want to make sure we get it here 
you know, like in this moment so that whenever he's older. Yeah, when you get it when he's four. <laughs> yeah, get if we can teach it to him when he's four, then maybe, you know, whenever he's 12 or 13, like he starts seeing other people and how the heat reacts to them differently um, and, and learning that. So, I mean, like we're, you know, we're right now and, you know, in, a, in our household, you know, struggling with, with stuff and how to how to get through it. And so I really appreciate Michael's words on that. Um, and just, you know, sharing his experience and what this scripture means to him. I I think it really helps to hear that from him. And then it, it teaches us something. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we're going to, we're going to pick up in, uh, Ruth chapter four. Did you have any other thoughts on that? Okay. Um, we're going to pick up, um, Ruth chapter four, where we had left off, um, it was a um, the scene where um, Boaz and Ruth have this interaction on the threshing floor, um, and these two two characters um, that you know the what what it is is that Ruth goes down and propose basically proposes marriage to him. Uh, she takes off her widow's clothes, puts on clothes that's showing that she is available for marriage, and basically says, "Hey, you you can you need to redeem." our family, uh, redeem Naomi. And she goes down there and Boaz is like, you know, he wakes up in the middle of the night. He's shocked to see that she's there. And, uh, he immediately, like his reaction is just really, really cool. And that he, he's like for her, he's like, your, your kindness, your hesed, uh, is even greater than before. You didn't go after these younger men instead, you know, he's, she's coming to him uh, to redeem Naomi's family. She's not looking out for herself. She's actually looking out for Naomi by going after Boaz, uh, because Boaz is, is one that can actually redeem Naomi's family. Uh, and so he sees her, 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 uh, loyalty and is just overcome by it. And he's like, Hey, I'm going to take care of this. You need to stay here, uh, until morning so that you're safe and then go home. And then she, he takes, you know, all this barley, uh, he pours it all out in her cloak so that she has it to take home, like six measures. Um, and then uh, Naomi is overjoyed, and she's like, "Hey, he's not gonna, he's not gonna um, let this go until it's settled." And uh, that's the kind of faith that she has in Boaz, based off of his character and what he's done so far. So we've seen this Naomi through the story. She she kind of began the story empty at the end of chapter one, and she's slowly been filled up. Um, through the actions of Ruth and Boaz, that they're continuing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of of uh, of someone else, mainly Naomi, uh, who is kind of a side character. Like you just kind of see her every once in a while, but this whole story is actually about her being filled up by these two characters. Uh, so we're going to pick up in chapter four. You want to read this first sec- section? Yeah. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one else has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. 
I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So we we have this uh, immediate reaction by Boaz. He goes out to the city gate and he sits there. And he's waiting for this person who is in line before him um, to uh, to kind of talk to him about what's going on. And um, it's really interesting. Um, it's like he, he just waits for this guy and he's just immediately like, hey, you. And it's actually in Hebrew, it's like, Mr. So-and-so, uh, come over here and sit, Mr. So-and-so. Uh, and so he can't, comes over and sits, and he gathers the ten, t- the these ten elders at the city gate. He says, "Sit here." So like all, he kind of is like made this impromptu like court scene. Um, and you, Mister So and So, is like, I have no idea what's going on here. This is, you know, I don't. I I imagine he's kind of shocked at the situation, because uh, there's just it's just like sit here, ten elders come here, and so they sit here, and then they kind of have this kind of court scene of, hey, you are the the nearest one of kin uh, to be able to redeem Naomi's family. Do you want to do it? You want to redeem her land? And his first reaction is yes. Uh, and then Boaz kind of reveals the rest of his hand uh, and says, but if you redeem this family, you're redeeming the, you know, this, this dead man's line uh, with Ro- Ruth the Moabite. Uh, and whenever he, he hears that, he says, I'm out, I'm, I'm not going to do this. Uh, so it's a really interesting interaction, um, in that he kind of does this two fold section. Why not just say it all outright? Um, and so we discussed that. Do you remember what we came to? Um, that? well, I just, I remember we kind of talked about how, you know, is it the fact that Ruth is a Moabite? that is so concerning to him or would it matter if it was um an israelite you mm-hmm. know i think either way it would be kind of um endangers his own estate but yeah. i think it probably endangers his own estate worse um because she is a moabite yeah in his mind it makes it worse because she's a moabite and so I think it's two stage because if he just gives it all outright, you don't really know the motives behind it. Right, because he um, was definitely in on the land originally. Yes, and so he's like, "That'd be a great investment. I would get the land, and then I would be able to re, you know, like all of that. This would be a great investment for this land." Mm-hmm. Uh, but to realize that there's somebody there that he could actually continue on the line, what that means is that for him to redeem the family, he's gonna have to like he'll have to pour in money to the estate. Uh, into that land that he's ultimately going to give back to whoever the heir is um, that he has with Ruth. And so what that means is that he's he's basically going to have to give up something for this family in order to redeem them. And so he's like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Um, I want you know my wealth to stay with my family instead of giving it to Naomi and her heirs. You know, and I think the interesting thing about this is, like, at first glance, if you read this, you're like, wow, he's so selfish. Like, mm-hmm. now he's just like, no, I don't want to help her. But really, this is a smart financial decision um, yep. to protect himself and his family. Yeah. And um, it's, 
I don't think it's that different from how I would respond um, because I, I do, I guess, one of my, uh, I don't know, I have a need for security. I think a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And so um, trying to make sure that your your future is secure, that your kids' futures are secure is like a big struggle. And sometimes that leads us to be a little selfish. Yeah. Um. I So I don't necessarily, I can very much see myself in this first kinsman redeemer um, just because I think I would have a similar tendency. Yeah. It wouldn't be like necessarily of, it wouldn't be a, a hate for another person. It would just be a, I need to keep what's already mine safe. Yeah. Yeah. And so like he's, he's interested in protecting his name and his lineage and the people that are coming after him. He doesn't want there to be a dispute between Ruth's child, you know, the, the, whoever the heir would be that he would have with Ruth and his own heirs, you know, for that inheritance. He doesn't want that. Pro- that it creates com- a lot it, of problems. It complicates things. That yeah. creates a lot of problems. When you start having babies with multiple women, that has a lot of crazy, <laughs> a lot of problems. Uh, and so, you know, like, I, is this inherently wrong? Um, by the law, this isn't wrong. He's not, he's not his brother. You know, he's not, has no obligation to do this. Um, and, and so it's not necessarily that it's highlighting him as being a bad person. I think more so what it's doing is highlighting the incredible loyalty and steadfast love of Boaz. That this man is making, this man's actually making a wise decision with his money and his inheritance. uh, And Boaz is willing to give it all up. Like he's, he's actually willing to, to put it, put everything in. Well, for the sake of it's it's exactly family. what you already said, disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of another. Yes. And that's exactly what Boaz is doing here. Right. And I think that that's kind of put there to show why this is a risk for this person and to show why this would be a risk for Boaz too. Mm-hmm. But Re- Boaz doesn't seem to care. He's just like full of this generosity that is just unmatched by anybody else. Yeah. Um, I also, I really appreciate too, how you kind of see how Boaz is continuing to do things in the right way. And the fact that he did like bring in the elders, um, to have them there as witnesses. And I mean, he's going about it in a way that's very smart and in accordance with the law. And, um, I don't know, just a, a, a good example of how to carry yourself. I think. Yeah, um, so this is a note from the CSB Study Bible that I just thought was fascinating. Um, it says, basically, he, he wants to back out because he wants to protect his name, and he wants his name to continue. And it says, ironically, his concern to protect his own name rather than committing to raise up heirs to the name of Elimelech led to him being left nameless. In seeking to serve self first, he inadvertently undermined his best interests. It is instead Boaz whose name would be famous in Bethlehem. And so because he he was trying to put like continue his own name and then by doing so in this story, he's actually the one that's left nameless. Like yeah. he's just Mr. So and so. Yeah, we know. Mr. So and so. I don't know who the like if first he had just in line kinsman redeemer who we don't yeah, know who you'll he never is. know his name, and that was like what he was death like he was like desperately trying to protect, um, and so it's a really I think a fascinating literary tactic that's used to show like yeah. hey this is the person that wasn't remembered the one that didn't give up himself 
even though he didn't necessarily do something wrong, uh, this self-giving love of Boaz is what's remembered uh, in this story, and the self-giving love of Ruth. Those are the two characters that are remembered. This um, is kind of something I struggle with, though, is like when to take a risk, mm-hmm. you know, in that way, and when to not. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, yeah, this man didn't necessarily, like what he did wasn't like sinful. Um, but like when is... That I th- I feel like at some point, you know, like taking a risk becomes just like, as we say around here, D-U-M, dumb. Yeah, D-U-M, dumb. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. um, so it just, that's like just a hard thing to navigate and obviously depends on situations and stuff, but I, it's so tricky for me. I think first we have to take the step of, I, I think in this story, we are not Boaz and we're not Ruth. Um, whenever we look at this story, whenever we look forward, that we have to see that this Boaz character, that he, like, that this person is very much emulated in the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's just something we can't, like, we're, we, we are not able to necessarily live up to that. Yeah. Um, you know, only by the power of the Spirit can we live up to that. And so I think sometimes we want to like look at these moral characters or the the good moral things that people do in the scriptures uh and be like oh you need to be like David. Right. No 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 you're not David. Mm-hmm. You we are not uh we are not that character. The person that it was that character was Jesus the Messiah. That he he stepped in whenever all of us were scared of our enemy. Uh, that ultimately was sin and death, um, that he looked it in the eye and he he killed it in a single shot. You know, that that's the character that's that D, that David is looking forward to. Not necessarily to we're just, we're scared Israelites, right? Um, and you know, and it's like once he did that, then all the Israelites run forward, right? They all run in a scream in that mm-hmm. story. And so I think the same thing is kind of happening here. I, I think if we try to achieve this righteousness of Boaz. Like we're gonna we're gonna fail at that, um, but what we need to see is the Messiah instead in that place and be like, no, he like we're in the place of Naomi in this story, you know, like we we've we have lost, you know, like if we really think about it, if like do through the consequences of sin we've lost everything, mm-hmm. and it's through this redemption story uh, that is lived out in the Messiah. Um, that we get to see Boaz and Ruth lived out. I think I think Boaz and Ruth are very much the person of Jesus in this story, um, and so I, I think that's something that we have to humble ourselves and recognize that, like, whenever we see stories like this, it's not like, "Hey, go be like Boaz." No, no, no. Jesus, who is the who is the descendant of this man mm-hmm. and the descendant of this woman. He lived it out, and he and he took care of that, and be, he became that for us, uh, in our place. And so it's like putting our faith in him, and it's like you know Naomi didn't played no part in this really, but she's the one, and we're gonna get to this. She's the one that's filled up in the story, and just the same, it's like we were undeserving of the Hesed of Yahweh, um, and so yet still Jesus did what he did, and we're filled up with this. Um, with this love and faithfulness of God, you know that He's that He was there for us. You know He He's acting out this role. Yeah. I think, 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's what's going on. I think we have to remember that sometimes when we read this. But it's not to say this isn't what we're supposed to be trying to achieve as response of the grace that we've been given. Uh, I think there's definitely that aspect of it, but it's not like, well, you either you got to be like Boaz or you're done for. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So. Yeah. It's just like having the wisdom to navigate those situations. Yeah. I guess. But. Yeah. yeah, and seeing this is what this is what we were called to be. Yeah. And so let's go try to live this out. But remember our faith and our it's not in our works, it's in it's it's our faith in, in Jesus that we that we've received the Holy Spirit and we're able to have a new heart that's like Boaz. Right. It's like Ruth. Um and so I, I, I think that, that's kind of important to remember. So I'm gonna read this All next right. little section. Seven here. through twelve. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the Kisman Redeemer uh and transfer of property. To confirm the matter, a man removed his sandal and gave it to his fellow countrymen. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, Acquire it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have acquired all that was for Elimelech and that was for Kilian and Malan uh, from the hand of Naomi. And also Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malan, I have acquired as a wife to raise up the name of the dead over his inheritance so that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his relatives and from the gate of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And all the people who were at the gate uh, and the elders said, we are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman coming into your house as Rachel and as Leah, uh, who, who together built the house of Israel. May you have strength uh, in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, from the offspring that Yahweh will give to you from this young woman. So uh, I guess what's striking to you in this section? Um, I think... <laughs> This is just kind of interesting to me how it kind of gives the background of like the handing off of the sandal. Yeah. Um, that's just sort of an interesting note of kind yeah. of the symbolizing of like making a deal. Yeah, and know. it's tying you back. It wants you to go read. It's yeah. kind of like saying, hey, hey, go check me out. You yeah. know, like go see what I'm talking about. Uh, and so it comes from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. In that section, uh, it goes through this... Um, this ritual that would happen. And basically what it was, was a shaming, uh, a shaming ritual for the brother who wouldn't take, um, who would not continue the line of, uh, you know, of a dead widow, you know, of a dead man's widow, you know, that he wouldn't, he would not fulfill this kinsman redeemer role. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the, the ritual was to kind of shame him, uh, for not continuing it because he refused to. And it says that like he would, you would spit, take his sandal and spit in his face is what the widow would do. Uh, and so it's really interesting to me that like only the base layer of that is here. The shaming part is gone. Yeah. The spitting is gone. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, in, in my opinion, I, I think, uh, part of that is that, but Bo I mean, Boaz doesn't want to shame this person. He actually, he wants, he wants to redeem he he himself wants to redeem Naomi and redeem Ruth, and so it's like if I shame him, then he might come back off of that. If I start being like I'm gonna embarrass you in front of everybody, 
then you might be like, okay, fine. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want that to happen. Uh, he actually, he himself, Boaz, wants to give up. Like, he wants desperately, deep down, he wants to give up something for somebody else uh, and redeem Ruth and, and Naomi. And so I, I think that plays a part into yeah, why. the way he just, like, proclaims how he is going to do this kind of shows how he is so not embarrassed about this and, nope. and very much eager and pleased to do this yes for naomi and for ruth yeah and he says you know i'm gonna acquire the wife you know the ruth the moabite you know everyone behold i'm gonna acquire the wife the wife um that is ruth the moabite the wife of malan um and uh and raise up the name of the dead over his inheritance i love that line to raise up the name of the dead basically he's saying i'm gonna resurrect this line Mm -hmm. um and and we'll find out later um, this is the line of David, um, and then ultimately through David, the Messiah. And so this, the line of the Messiah is dead right now. It's dead. And through Boaz's actions and through Ruth's actions, it's going to be resurrected to life. Um, and I, I think that is just so fascinating and yeah, really I fun. Love that. Yeah. And really fun. And so, yeah, he's saying, behold, everybody, Hey, you know, I'm I'm doing this and I really want to do this. And um and so their their response is like we are witnesses, right? And then they kind of give this blessing of and 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 say for this Moabite woman, may she be like our matriarchs. Mm-hmm. May she be like the ones through whom all of Israel has come out of. That's it. I feel like that's a really huge statement. Um that they're saying, May Ruth the Moabite be like Rachel and Leah. Um who together all of the house of Israel was built. Um, I think that's a really telling moment and something that we're supposed to learn from. Um, that they're that these men, these elders are are saying about this Moabite woman that she's uh, they're hoping that she's going to be as good as you know the matriarchs of the of of Israel. Um, and then this last little line in chapter in in verse twelve. Um, brings up a person that you may not know a whole lot about, Tamar. Uh, Tamar is another woman um, who, one of the three women, I think, mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. Um, and <clears throat> so she she was a widow. Um, she's like, she was a widow to one of Judah's sons. And all of Judah's sons ended up dying. And she goes to Judah to say, hey, Judah, um, I need you to redeem this family. And he's like, ah, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and passes on it. And so Tamar is left with no other options other than to say that what she does is she dresses as a prostitute and Judah sleeps with her. She takes his scepter and his cloak, I think. Um, and then later, whenever she's pregnant from Judah, um, she like whenever it's revealed, Judah's like you need like everybody wants to have her killed. Judah wants to have her killed, and then she reveals his scepter and his cloak. It's a really interesting, really random story in Genesis. It's like put right in the middle of the Jacob story, and the whole point is that Judah was not going to fulfill like this kinsman redeemer role, and instead Tamar has to trick him into it, and now she's being. It's like. You know, that heir is the one that's being praised here, uh, Perez, um, of whom, you know, all of this would flow out of. 
Um, but anyways, another like really, you know, interesting story and another woman who's like showing a lot of courage. The whole story is like not negative towards Tamar at all. It's more, it's all about Judah being a jerk. Um, and how he's not fulfilling that kinsman redeemer role. And now, and from that line, now you have Boaz who's doing the complete opposite. Um, and just like overflowing with generosity. So you have any other thoughts on this section? Okay. I think so, covered it. So you want to finish it up? Yeah. All right. And uh, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. So I love how translations really try to step around this, Um, but... Whenever the author wants to tell you that they had sex, he tells you. <laughs> Before, he was, like, really vague. Like, you couldn't kind of tell, and we talked about that. Yeah. Of how, like, what happened, you know? And it yeah. was, like, purposely vague, making you question what happened, even though otherwise they've been per- perfectly, you know, virtuous characters. Yeah. Well, whenever the author wanted you to know that they had sex, he says, and he went into her. You know, like, he entered her. And so the NIV really tries to step around it. It's like, and he went to her. It's like we can't handle, like, the sex uh, aspect of it. Uh, but it's very, very graphic, actually, like, in, in the Hebrew. It's very direct of what happened. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think whenever the author wanted to tell you that they had sex, he told you that they had sex, as opposed to before <laughs> he was, you know, I think playing with you. Yeah. Uh, and making you, like seeing part of yourself that's questioning what's going on. Anyways, more on that. Go back to chapter two. Um, and, um, I'm sorry, chapter three, that was last week, uh, chapter three. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you can, um, hash that out. Uh, but I, th- I think whenever the author wants to tell you what's going on, he tells you. Um, and so there you go. They, um, he goes into her, uh, and can, they conceive a son. Uh, and it's like immediate. It's very much like Yahweh's hand. It says uh, Yahweh enabled her to conceive. Mm-hmm. Yahweh is very much involved in this in this relationship. Uh, and uh, like this praise is, is really awesome. Um, in that, you know, it's like, may his name be renowned in Israel. Uh, he shall be a restorer of life. And a sustainer in your old age. So we kind of talked about who he is. Who did you think he is? So in this one, let's see, I can't, now I can't remember which one I thought he he was when we originally read this. It kind of goes back to chapter two, though, I think, when Garrett and I had different opinions of, was it talking about the Lord or was it talking about Boaz? And then in this one, we kind of had the same thing of like, 
may he become famous throughout Israel. Is that talking about the Lord? Or is that talking about Boaz, like renewing your life and sustaining you? Is that talking about the Lord? Or is that talking about Boaz? Yeah. And our answer for um, both chapters is, it's kind of talking about both. Yeah, the, the answer is kind of yes. And so, yeah. and not only that, so now we have a third added to it. It's the son. Yeah. The son is a redeemer uh, because he's going to be the one that's going to continue on the line. And so it says, Yahweh enabled her to conceive and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be Yahweh who today did not leave you without a redeemer. They said that in response to the son being born. Mm, and yeah. uh, and so the the son is kind of the one that's being thrown out there as the redeemer. But and it says, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Okay, maybe that's still the son. Uh, you know, surely Yahweh is already renowned in Israel, right? But wait, time of the judges. Um, and then he shall be a restorer of life and a sustainer in your old age. Is that Boaz? Is that the son? Is that Yahweh? And I think the answer is yes. I think it's yes to all of them. Um, in that Yahweh is ultimately the redeemer here, mm-hmm. but his vehicles of redemption are human beings, are Boaz and this son that he's allowed to, you know, that he's, you know, allowed them to conceive, um, that they're the vehicles of his, of his redemption. Just the same. It's like, uh, in Exodus, it talks about with Moses, it, he tells Moses, I'm going to redeem Israel with an outstretched arm. He tells him, I, I Yahweh, I'm going to redeem Israel with an outstretched arm. But the person that outstretches his arm in the story is Moses. He's the one that actually reaches out his hand in the story. And so it's really interesting. It's like, well, who's reaching out their hand? Yeah. Who's the one with the outstretched arm? Right. Well, the answer is both. Moses is the vehicle of Yahweh's redemption. And just the same here, Boaz is being portrayed here. Again, this is the Exodus theme of this redemption um, and how how God has redeemed through humanity uh, this, this person, Naomi, uh, and her family. So he's redeemed her family. And so she went from being completely empty to now she's just completely filled up. Um, and overflowing with blessing um, to the point where even, you know, the one that's highlighted there at the last of the praise isn't the son, isn't Boaz or Yahweh. The one that's praised at the end of that is, uh, and, you know, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better than seven sons born to, born, born him or has born him. Um, and so, what she's saying, what what these women are saying is that r- r- the faithfulness of Ruth is even, if you had all the sons as you could ever imagine, it wouldn't be worth what Ruth is worth. Yeah, which is so unexpected in this narrative because she's a foreigner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, not only, you know, I mean, it's <clears throat> just like nothing about her seems like, oh yeah, she's going to be... I don't know. She's just kind of an unassuming hero, yeah. in a sense. A woman of noble character who can find. Yeah. And so that's that's Proverbs 31, and it's looking, you know, those two things are playing off each other. This is that emulation of it, being like, man, you know, the a woman that, that is like this, man, it, it's worth all the sons that you could ever imagine. And that's just so, 
such a big deal in this time period uh, to say something like that. That's just so over the top. And then I love how um, it it ends with the line and uh, the, the family line um, because I love that more now because of what you were saying about how the line was resurrected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, Naomi has lost so much that to see this like fullness in her line, um, like to know where this is going to lead. Yeah. Um, to, to get to David and then ultimately to Jesus is like just a really cool thing of that. Yeah. That idea of like at the beginning of this book, Naomi was lost her kids, lost her husband. And now she's, holding this precious baby boy mm-hmm. who is going to ultimately, <laughs> you know, allow Jesus to be born. Right. Um, and so, like, it just, it does, it shows how empty she was at the beginning and how full she is now. Yeah. And I so, and let's lay this over. I'll lay this micro-narrative over the mega-narrative, if you will. Um, you had Israel, who once had everything, they go off into exile. They, they're they stripped of everything they ever loved. They have no temple. They have, like, their God seems to have abandoned them. They feel like they've lost everything. Yahweh hates us is what they, that, the way that they feel whenever they're in. They're like, why have you done this? Why have you allowed this to happen, Yahweh? Where are you? You know? And so they're in exile in Babylon and you know they return home and even when they return home they still don't have all this fullness just like Naomi she returns home she's still not filled up you know and out of in the midst of all this chaos and this loss uh you have a redeemer that rises up in Bethlehem and and so whenever you lay the 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 micro narrative of the story over with the mega narrative they're the same story this this small story is being retold over and over and over again it's as the like it's showing you like the huge mega narrative of the bible of what god is doing and that he is redeeming his people you know he's actively working to do that and yeah it may feel like it's empty right now but i'm working to redeem it and it's through the person of Jesus that this is lived out. And he's he's the baby boy born here at this you know, at the end, you know, that's gonna be the redeemer. That's the redeemer of Naomi's family. Jesus is the one that's born that's going to redeem the family. And uh and so I I wanna lay those two things over on each other because I think they really like you kind of can see how those wheels are working together. Yeah. Um and uh and I think it's really beautiful. So We've wrapped up Ruth, and as we always do at the end of a book, is we're going to talk about our favorite parts of the book. Mm-hmm. So do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Um, I, I think for me, I mean, there, there's, a, there's obviously a lot of things in this one that are just really beautiful. Um, but I, I think uh, there's, I'm going to pick two places because I can't just pick one. <laughs> um, I think whenever he... Um, it's more of a part of the narrative as much as um, it's it's one line so much uh, is that whenever Boaz sees her uh, oh, in the yeah. field yeah and he recognizes her and she she falls down 
um, before him. Um, and she's just like, why, you know, how have I found favor in your eyes? And it says, this is verse 10 of chapter two. It says, and she fell on her face and bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes by recognizing me for I am a foreigner. And so to hear that, uh, that repetition that I continue to hear through scripture of this God as a God who sees and a God who, who knows, um, the things that you're going through and, the things you feel like you're not being seen right now, and um, but God is is right there with you. He is El Roy. He is the one that that sees you where you are. And I say, think the next one, it kind of goes in hand in glove with that one, um, is whenever she uh, goes to the threshing floor. This is in chapter three, um, and it says, um, this is verse. Uh, nine and ten, she asked him to spread his garment over over your servant because you are a redeemer. And he said, "You are blessed by Yahweh, my daughter, and you did better in this last kindness than in the first by not going after young men, whether rich or poor." And then at verse eleven, right here, and then he then so then my daughter, do not be afraid. All that you ask, I will do for you, for the entire assembly of my people knows that you are a worthy woman. And uh, and just that recognizing her again and seeing her and telling her do not be afraid, and I think for me hearing that hearing those words on his lips is like oh now I know who he is in this story, like I know who he's representing. He's representing Yahweh, or at least at the very least he's Yahweh's messenger. Um, that this do not be afraid on his lips ties me into who who this character is. And who he's representing, and that he's representing Yahweh, and so now all now all the things that he does, I'm like, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to see Yahweh in this character, not necessarily myself. I'm supposed to see Yahweh and his compassion and his steadfast love, mm-hmm. and then I yes, I'm supposed to try to emulate that, but that's who he is in this story. Yeah. So yours. So mine is um, Ruth two nineteen and twenty. So her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked at with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. And um, the main reason... uh. The, the highlighted part here, I guess, would be um, he has not sh- stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Um, and this this is the section we were referring to earlier that is like, is, he ta- is, is the author talking about Boaz or is he talking about God? And when I read this, I mainly think about God. Um, but I here what I have noticed is... This is Naomi's first glimmer of hope um, that maybe things will be better. I feel like this is kind of a, a turning point in the story for her of, um, you know, yeah, she was like, I, I mean, I would imagine she was a little nervous for Ruth to go in the fields knowing that she could be taken advantage of. And now that she has realized that someone has treated Ruth so well and that they're a kinsman redeemer, it's the spark of hope. And 
I've been thinking a lot lately about how much people are hurting right now and um, how sometimes people just need that spark of hope to keep going, to keep moving forward. Um, It even kind of goes back to the scripture that Michael sent us about, um, you know, keeping the faith and, and, and just that. Fighting the good fight. Yeah, just that endurance aspect and kind of how I think that this was a moment for Naomi where she got that kind of reassurance. God still loves me. This won't be the end of me. Like Mm -hmm. the things won't be terrible. Things won't be bad for forever. There is hope. Yeah. And I think having hope is so key. I think that's what, I think that's the struggle right now is um, like in our society is that we feel hopeless with there not being like a set, yeah, like COVID is going to be over at this date and things will be going back to normal on this date. Like everyone's still confused about what work is going to look like, what school is going to look like, what just different aspects of what used to be normal life would look like. And, um, and so just having like a glimmer of hope, um, I just think means the world to people. And I think that that can be through a small act of kindness to someone else. Garrett had the opportunity to help somebody with a flat tire the other day. And I think that that might've provided that person with just this little glimmer of hope in the chaos of, of everything that's going on in the world right now. And, um, so that has really, that scripture has taken on new meaning to me because of the last few months, really. Yeah. Um, and just how, uh, how important hope is to us. Yeah. I I think, um, we have to, I, I think it's a challenge for us to figure out what we put our hope in. Yeah. And, you know, I think when we put our hope in government or we put our hope in, um, you know, I, the legislature or when we put our hope in Twitter feeds, like, I think that's a lot of what we, like we put our hope in these things that just can't provide for like what, what we need. Um, and recognizing that our hope, you know, or even putting our hope in our hope in doctors for the COVID stuff, or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, we need to recognize what it is we do put our hope in. And if we're put, not putting our hope in Jesus, then we're not, like, there. there is going to be problems. We're going to continue to have problems because you can't put hope in those things. Yeah. There's one, there's one thing you can put your hope in, and that's in the Messiah, and that he's going to take care of all of it. And, uh, and I think we continue living, you know, in light of the Messiah and what he's asked us to do, but, man, we got to, we do have to refocus our, I think that's where all of our frustration comes from and, you know, anger that we feel and, um, you know, the, like of, of the injustice in this world, the things that are going on. I think, I think, you know, a lot of that anger comes from us just not having, you know, a good focus on what our hope is. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I want to see us try to move back to Jesus because when we do that, man, everything else will fall into place. Um, and so I, I guess I want to challenge that we, we find ways to, to recenter our hope on Jesus. 